Welcome to Experiences of Insight. On today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Diana Asher, who focuses on information technology and decision-making in organizations. Her interdisciplinary research draws from her work in a variety of fields, including financial communication, journalism, and public policy. Dr. Asher is the director of the Information Studies Research Lab at UCLA, where she develops resources and programming to support the curriculum of the Department of Information Studies. She is also the founder of the Information Ethics and Equity Institute, which translates data management priorities for information workers, as well as the ethics, economics, and politics of data management and information ethics with respect to identity, privacy, power, and freedom. Dr. Asher earned a PhD from the Department of Information Studies in the Graduate School of Education and Information Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles. She also holds an MBA from the Peter F. Drucker Graduate School of Management at the Claremont Graduate University and a BA in Public Policy with a concentration in Journalism and International Policy from Duke University. Without further ado, we bring you Dr. Diana Asher. Hi, Diana. Hi. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Pleasure to be here. Are you joining us from Los Angeles? I am. With uh, me, as always, we have my partner, Lee Duncan, from IBM. Hello. Hi, Lee. Diana, we... um, as I was communicating in the introduction, your background is really, really impressive. I mean, of all the people that I've been lucky to come into contact with over the years, um, in addition to, um, uh, you know, professionally and personally, uh, you definitely stand out. And I think for Lee and I, when we were going through some of your work, uh, we were really blown away by um, the vastness that it covers and it really plays into some of the research and uh, work that we've been doing over the past couple of years and touches on a lot of topics. It seems like you have a long history of education and that's, uh, I wanted to know if through education that kind of um, basically led you down a path of researching certain topics or was there another catalyst that happened um, that eventually got you to the point that you are now in and focusing and talking about data with people and helping them um, think about how organizations and people interact. Um, could you could you give us a little background? Sure. And you know, I'm the daughter of two academics who fortunately exposed me to many different people from different cultures and different parts of the world. And so I feel I I grew up with a global view, a global. Um, curiosity. And that, I think, is the reason why if I'm interested by something in any sector, any field, I will go and try to learn how that sector works and how it relates to everything else that I've experienced. Every 10 years or so, I seem to go back to school for another degree because I learned that there's still more to know. And I try to delve a little deeper and understand how all of these different contexts interrelate. Let me, uh, let me ask a quick question um, since we're here. So as I listen to 
your resume and everything you've achieved. Um, basically, most of what you're doing today are are you're trying to address some of the most complex, difficult, and relevant issues. Where do you start? How do you you know these are really difficult things that corporations and um, educational institutions are trying to make sense of. How do you approach? How do you approach these big challenges? Well, that's a very good question, and a lot of people have tried it from many different angles. Um, my background has some policy sciences framework undertones to it, and I try to think about the values of all the constituents involved in the decision. Um, when you're dealing with situations like data ethics in very large corporations, uh, you want to partner with the corporations and academia and the associations that tend to be the intermediaries. Um, I'm working with the Enterprise Data Management Council, we call it EDM Council, and they have pretty much the standard framework for data management for giant companies that have massive amounts of data and I'm leading their team on, uh, they have a working group on data ethics and incorporating data ethics um, sensibility into the DCAM model. So that's kind of how I've approached it in the past. You know, in each of my jobs over the years, when I worked at Bloomberg, when I worked at Capital Group, I may have had a role that was tied to journalism and communication but I was always more interested in the systems and the way that people receive that information. So, for example, I, when I started at Bloomberg, I was a multimedia producer. My job was pretty straightforward. We listened to earnings calls and recorded them and then spliced them up into sections that could be reviewed and skipped around to on the Bloomberg terminal. And this was back in the mid-90s, so this was you know, a, an unusual approach. But what we didn't have was any way to get the message of what was being discussed in the earnings call to people visually. And so I was able to incorporate some of the statistical analyses and, and you know, charts and images into that content, which was revolutionary at that time. Um, so I was very concerned with the information systems and how the story was framed, right? And then at other organizations, I would sort of be a liaison between a lot of different departments like legal compliance and communications and data analysis and custom publishing. Um, I think custom publishing probably gave me the greatest insight into how to think beyond your own paradigm. Um, you have to create personas of your various target audiences and you frame information differently for different populations. Um, when you move into the realm of data ethics and human rights, that's where it gets really exciting because it's not just a marketing platform or a, a messaging um, template, but you have to think about how the recipients of 
this information or the donors of their data felt when they were donating their data, what they expect a company to do with it, how they will be affected by decisions made based on that data. And that's really where all of these influences from my background have come to rest at the moment and coming up with a code of data ethics as an institutional practice um, is a challenge that's worth undertaking because there's a lot at risk right now. You know, uh, I just wanted to ask a question, a uh, follow-up on that point, Diana. Um, and, uh, you know, I, in doing my research to make sure that uh, I was up to speed and, um, you know, drafting some questions before we opened up our dialogue today, um, you know, one of the things that kind of stuck out and was kind of surprising to me, and I guess it's to be expected, is the difference between how the EU, for example, views privacy as opposed to the U.S. and some of the work that's been done leading up to the implementation of the GDPR and mm -hmm. you know, just kind of the, the basic premise and the different mindset. And like in the EU, for example, you know, privacy is a human right um, and is considered that. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk to, you know, when you talk about standardization at the enterprise level and knowing the outreach of the EDM, for example, um, and, and some of the areas and, um, you know, I had a chance to meet some of the members recently, but knowing that it's not just uh, a group that's working in the U.S., but overseas as well. Um, you know, what are some of the challenges that go into developing that standard? Could you talk to us about that a little bit and then along the lines of what Lee was asking, you know, where do you start or how, how do you, how do you attack the problems that you're, you're seeing and um, you've identified? Sure. Um, that's a complex question. So you might have to remind me as, as I go along um, where I'd like to start with this is the fact that by necessity, regulation lags behind the innovation, right? You get new technology, people start applying it in unanticipated ways, and it takes time for a legal process to catch up and safeguard those things that a society values that may or may not be threatened by that innovation. Um, the fact that GDPR is as stringent as it is, is a reflection of the values of the folks who spearhead that regulation. Um, it's also an effect of power. People with money in the U.S. have, have an opportunity now to um, influence what regulation we're going to have to protect data as a human right. Um, and for many reasons, you can tell that some companies are not so concerned about it. Um, part of this is a short-term, long-term cultural orientation. Uh, that goes back to how work has changed. Um, Internet-based gig economy work is very, very different. People have a different relationship with their employers. And 
the time frame that I think executive management are planning for is shorter than it had been in previous decades. I think that the U.S. will pass legislation that resembles GDPR, and it's really great to have a model to work off of. Um, though we do have some differences in our societies, and those are things that are going to have to be sussed out through the legislative process. Um, the work with EDM Council is really an opportunity because organizations who care about data ethics, and when I say care about, there's two, two ways of caring about data ethics, right? You care because you don't want to get giant fines like Google and Facebook have recently, or you care because you really care about society and people and human dignity. Um, and what many people fail to realize is that some of the decisions that are the result of algorithms have life-changing effects. Um, people can die because of a programmer's assumption that an algorithm should function this way rather than that way. It can be a very serious issue. However, most of American society, I think, looks at it as, well, if you're irresponsible on social media, you know, some unflattering pictures may turn up in the future. I think uh, society starting to understand the fact that just as physical infrastructure sets up boundaries for different target populations, so does algorithmic infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And do you think that people today know they're donating their data? I think that, you know, it's become a little buzz in the media right now. I think a lot of people take the stance, oh, well, I don't care. You know, it's, it's out there anyway. And I, I vehemently disagree with that um, perspective. And for information on that, check out Daniel Solov, um, who makes the excellent case <laughs> that you should make it difficult for people to take your data. Yeah, so I was, I was thinking about if people today know they're donating their data, especially maybe certain um, age groups, maybe younger people don't know what they're giving away. And then sure. also, are there transparency practices that you think are really helpful? Okay, sure. So, I mean, I think people are beginning to get the sense that data that they didn't realize was going to different organization is, right? But I, I think people don't think of it as an alarming issue. I mean, certainly children don't have any way to grasp how posting things when you're in your teens can affect you in your 40s, um, which we've seen in political campaigns lately. Um, however, there are ways to mitigate that um, in California, anything that you posted before you were 18 uh, ostensibly is required to be wiped. Um, of course, you can never wipe anything from the web entirely, but at least there's a reflection of the values of protecting children on the internet in that California law. Um, 
when you sign terms of service, I, I don't think anybody reads that. Do you? No. I mean, no, I, don't. I read them because this is my research and they're tedious and long and intentionally difficult to access and to save. Um, I've seen companies do things like narrow the scroll bar so that you don't scroll down to read below the, the window on terms of service. Um, but in that legal document, you are agreeing not only to provide the data that you think you're providing at that moment to that company, but you have no idea what might happen if that company gets acquired by, say, Amazon or Google, any, any other company. Um, many of these companies operate without a data management plan, which in information studies is just ridiculous. Um, but if you don't have a schedule for how you're managing that data, how you sequester it, how you protect it, and how you dispose of it, I mean, you shouldn't keep data forever. You should collect and use data for a specific purpose that is transparent to consenting adults. And that is not always happening. I, I've been reading up on the facial recognition software. Um, these companies that had been like photo apps are now facial recognition companies. Um, I'm a little skeptical about that transition and whether it was intended from the beginning or whether it was an opportunity um, that they jumped on. But, you know, there were apps out there that let you age yourself. So you, you upload a picture and then it'll show you what you'll look like in many years. And I tell my students, yeah, don't do those apps because you're giving away your face, your facial data and it will be matched not only with you, but with your children and your siblings and your parents. And there, there are ramifications that one doesn't think about when you're just clicking the terms of service so you can get to the app. So there are some transparency things that organizations can do, and this is something that we're building into the DCAM. Um, but the main thing is that discourse has to happen. Because this can sometimes be off-putting, but if you'll bear with me for a moment, I tell people that there's a reason why algorithms tend to disfavor underrepresented groups and favor white men. And that's because most programmers, in the U.S. anyway, are 27-year-old white guys with Asperger. And I know that that's is a little strange to say. However, when you look beneath that, early studies of who was best suited to become computer programmers, and women were the first computers. But once it was determined that coding is hard, it became a subject of research, and the folks who were recommended as excellent coders had the same characteristics as DSM lists for Asperger syndrome. Now that's really interesting, right? I mean, these, these are folks who like to solve creative problems through code. Um, they're not interested in social interaction. But when you are dealing with data that affects social groups, 
you have to be educated in how these decisions can affect people un even unintendedly, right? So one of the things that we advocate for is mandatory forums and discussions within companies to ensure that people are thinking outside of their own filter bubble, outside of their own siloed uh, work, and that they generate possible outcomes that are seemingly outlandish, but may have real implications depending on how you code that algorithm. Another way that you encourage transparency is to insist that organizations have a code of data ethics and that it is specific on your data management plan, your schedule for disposition, your sequestering, and your handover policies. You know, if you're acquired or you acquire another company or you work with a third party, people need to know where their data is going and how it may be used in a completely different way. I was sitting in on a capstone project group at UCLA. Uh, Leah Levero teaches a wonderful human-computer interaction course. And the students were charged with coming up with approaches to ethical information surveillance. Um, and these students came up with some fantastic ideas, but they also bumped into the challenges that big corporations are facing in that, you know, you could have a platform where the consumer, everyday person can go and log in and see what information about them is held by every company out there. But when we think about things like how much email is in our inbox every day, that I can't imagine having to have the onus on the consumer to go check out what companies know about me. And I'm not convinced that I would even know what to make of it or, or what concerns to have. So I don't think the onus can be on the, the consumer. I think it has to be on the organizations who are data stewards and data stewardship needs to come with transparency and accountability. And I was, I was going to ask you about self-affirming algorithms, and I think you talked about that. How can we break from the loop of only seeing opinions that are agreeable to our own? To our own? Um, mm -hmm. And one other thing I, wanna, I wanted to ask about was moral machines. And how do you think, as we, you know, as we go forward, how can we give moral agency to AI? How can we make it so it can discern what's right and wrong? How do we inform AI? Well, first, I, I, I don't know that I'm on board with the idea of moral machines because machines are human-made and they follow the direction of their programmers, right? Um, we can try to train algorithms on the values of a culture and try to weight those values in various contexts and scenarios, but we can only do that so far as we can imagine what those scenarios and contexts are. So I am much more um, an advocate of, you know, human-computer symbiosis, basically, where you delegate the tasks that are more easily managed 
by an algorithm to the algorithm. And then the value judgments have to come from humans. And those humans have to be exposed to various cultures and contexts and be able to connect the dots and see how um, power is replicated online and how that can be disruptive or disruptive, depending on the situation. Um, I don't see moral machines being, I mean, maybe I'm misunderstanding, but I, I don't think that, uh, I don't think I, I would trust that a machine could be moral. Um, of course, it, I guess it depends on what you, you're tasking the machine with. You know, if the task is kill or don't kill, I think we could agree that don't kill is moral. And so if the machine doesn't kill, okay. But um, with more complex issues and, you know, like the, uh, the trolley problem, I don't know that you can teach a machine what the society's values are in a way that people will be comfortable with. So for those of us that aren't familiar with the trolley problem, do you mind just clarifying uh, what, what's outlined in that? Oh, there's lots of different versions of this. It's, um, if I can remember all of it, it's, if you know that a trolley is going down the track and there's someone on the track and you have the power to divert the trolley right. to a different track, right. but in doing so, you would cause some other egregious action to befall other people. How do you decide what's for the greater good? Or, you know, do you take on agency or do you let things proceed as they were proceeding and not get involved? And, um, you know, all of these ethical dilemmas of, of accountability to one another, um, in situations of uncertainty and, and situations of uh, precognition, right? If you know that you can make a change. Um, but I, I would suggest looking it up because I'm clearly not doing it just. No, it sounds like you captured the, the salient points of it. And I think just for illustrative uh, purposes coming after that point, it, it was just good to clarify it. Um, you know, one of the things that, and I know that we're um, getting close to our, our dedicated time with you, um, I wanted to know if you, I had a personal question just to ask you and hopefully for our listeners. Um, sure. You know, were, were there, over, let's say over the past five years, did you have any aha moments or any experiences that you could share that something... Um, you may have thought or you may have been thinking about or experienced either professionally or personally that um, you walked away with a very interesting lesson learned and kind of changed the way you've been working or maybe dealing with something or dealing with people um, just for our listeners edification. And I want to pick a if, good one. <laughs> and, if, and if not, that's totally that's totally fine. Um, oh, no, right? I, 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 like I said, I'm a very curious person and I'm always interested in how dynamics shift and change and have unintended effects. You, you 
you hit me with a tough question because I want to pick something that I think can be useful to other people. And sometimes my aha moments may be something that everybody already knows. Um, I think it could also be, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, one, one thing that I would say related to the data ethics and the legislation lag, even when a law is passed and goes into effect, you should think of that as the least common denominator because that's what's been negotiated as acceptable to all the stakeholders represented in that particular government. And ethics is above that. You have to decide what your values are and so legal compliance isn't enough. Um, and we know that quantum computing is around the corner and we are going to be flooded with more data than anyone can imagine. And just remembering that just because it's legal doesn't mean we should do it. Um, it is a, is something that I think organizations are, are being challenged by now. The folks who are seeing 20 years down the road um, recognize that we have to establish regulation and legislation that is forward-thinking and protects human dignity. And it seems kind of silly, say you have a startup tech company you're concerned with the day-to-day. -day. You're not looking 10 years down the road how your technology could affect people in ways that you didn't intend. Um, but there are a lot of former Facebook and, and Google folks who don't let their children access the Internet because they feel that they destroyed uh, trust in society. Um, so I think that's kind of an aha moment that we have a moral responsibility and ethical mandate that has to not just meet compliance standards, but to rise above and, and think about generations of the future. And Lee, I don't know if you had any uh, last parting questions for Diana. Just a couple things. For my personal interest, um, I was thinking about how people are becoming more quantified and we're getting mm -hmm. more and more biological data. And I think about the cost of mapping the human genome, genome has mm -hmm. come down and it's getting cheaper and cheaper. And pretty much my guess is that a lot of people will be able to afford it. In fact, it may be a component of our insurance or a medical appointment in some future day. What, do you, what are your thoughts on managing biological data? This is a huge concern. Um, I had a paper a couple years ago now on um, leftover IVS material, like biological genomic material, um, and the metadata associated with that biologic material that persists long after um, the tissue is disposed, right? And people had no idea that if you go into an IBS clinic and you have 
you know, several embryos or whatever, you've, you have a disposition schedule for those embryos. They either get donated for someone else to have a child or you have those babies, or if they're not viable, they're disposed of, right? But the metadata surrounding that information is not disposed of, and that's your DNA out there in the database for anyone with no data management plan. Same thing goes with uh, 23andMe and all of these, you know, send us your spit companies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, was, I was teaching a class of 35 undergraduates a couple years ago when I received the text and I was saying the words, don't ever send your spit to 23andMe because it's not just you. That's your entire lineage that now is in a database and they didn't have a say in that. Um, and then I get the text that my daughter just got her 23andMe results, and she was all excited. <laughs> so, you know, balancing that need to know and that interest and the potential for remarkable medical discoveries with protection of your genetic data and that of your progeny and your cousins and your parents, you know, it's a challenge and it's something that needs to be approached from a cultural standpoint too. Um, I I don't have the answers on that. Uh, You know, we know that you go into Quest Diagnostics to donate blood or to give blood for an annual physical, right? And most people don't read the term sheet there either. But all that leftover blood that is that remains after the test is completed gets donated to research, and that stuff can be re-identified. All you need is a couple databases purchased by the same company, such as Optum or an insurance company, and all of a sudden, your employer, your insurance company, your uh, health, medical, all of that is you're not anonymous. Um, and that, this is before quantum computing gets a hold of databases, right? So I, I have grave concern over these things. Um, not, not the answers, but I know we'll be closer to getting those answers and some sort of balance if more people are having serious discourse about it and holding these companies accountable for their third-party agreements and their disposition schedules and their management of data as companies are broken up and acquired. And thank you for um, sharing some of your thoughts and insights on that. Um, Even in, I know you could probably talk at length and that could be a separate podcast by itself or book or books or, you know, um, year long study. Or a and movie. We can do a movie. A movie, a sci-fi movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah. thriller. But uh, thank you for, yeah. for bringing it down a level for us and sharing that and, and rise, uh, raising the awareness out there for us. Diana, before our time is up with you, I was just wondering if you could um, help us and help our listeners understand a few good examples or places they could go to websites, blogs, uh, to get some good content um, from your perspective. That would be very helpful. 
also, I think more importantly, where can we find you or how can people follow you to stay current on the work that you're doing? Sure. So there are tons of examples of really great groups that are putting out proposed standards. Um, NIST, I always look to them because they, they take this very seriously. Um, researchers, the issue is that often the, the codes, code of ethics for data that are put out are very niche dependent. And rather than give a checklist to organizations and say, well, you have to do this, 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 and this, I'm more interested in starting that discourse about why, why transparency is important and what that means in that particular context. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, accountability is important because otherwise it, it doesn't mean anything if you're not going to follow through and, and measure your performance and then correct when you're not meeting those standards. Um, so I think I'm, I'm really interested in the discussion happening at all levels in an organization, you know, information workers are most of us, um, yet most people probably don't think that the ethical management of data is their purview. They think, okay, well, the the company has a legal department for that. I just do this task every day. But instead of just doing the task, interrogate the patterns that you're seeing. Interrogate the data set that you're given. Even great data can have terrible outcomes for populations that you're not thinking about. If everyone were critical and self-reflective in their day-to-day information management, I think we'd be a lot further along in protecting data as a human right. I think your comments around the dialogue and the need to think outside of just uh, legal compliance uh, to get to a higher uh, understanding and shared view of data ethics is my aha moment of the past day. So um, thank you. I mean, that's that that's it's so common sense and it makes um you know, that's, I think, if you, you'd be very hard-pressed to find people that disagree with that. Um, and, uh, you know, thank you for communicating that to us and sharing that with us, your views on that topic. And hopefully our listeners um, get a chance to hear those nuggets and take that away and think about that as they go through their day today, whatever that is in life and how they um, sign up for things or view the term sheet or not view the term sheet and that impacts their decisions going forward and also professionally mm-hmm. to that subset of people that are listening that are building great products out there. Um, hopefully these words don't fall on deaf ears. Um, I, I really appreciate the platform. Of course. Um, where, where can we find you, uh, Diana? Well, I um, am always in the lab at UCLA. If you're ever here, pop in and visit me. We've got great things going on there. Um, and we're training those information managers of the future. Um, you can also find me online, dianaasher.com. 
on Twitter, Diana Asher. Um, you can search for me on DuckDuckGo, uh, and I should turn up there. I'd love to hear anybody's opinions on, on these issues and ideas, because the more we hear from different groups, the better the outcome is going to be. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us uh, from Los Angeles today. And uh, we definitely wish you best of luck going forward with your research. And from the experiences of Insight Team, if there's anything we can do for yourself, uh, the work that you're doing with UCLA, EDM, especially uh, love the work that they're doing, uh, the Enterprise uh, Data Management Council, and um, or any of your other commercial uh, projects that you're working on, please let us know how we can help you, Diana. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity, and I look forward to listening to other broadcasts of folks who have very interesting things to share as well. On behalf of the Experiences of Insight team, we'd like to thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. We hope that it was value added and that you continue to check out our content. Have a nice day.